realized I had not turned my mic on. Good morning. So good to see all of you. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at City Church, and uh, such a joy to be with you. And um, as we just sang, I want to just thank the worship team for leading us to, um, I pray, remind all of our hearts of who is supreme and who is uh, king. And um, I confess with you that so often in my life, um, the Lord somehow gets diminished and becomes less than and is not holding his proper place um, in our lives and in my heart. And so what a joy to be reminded and to pray with us, uh, one another as we sing to make our hearts to believe that. And sometimes that's all we can do is ask for God's help to believe and to make that so um, and trust and believe that he's faithful to do so. Uh, we are continuing in our study in the book of Hebrews. If you are a guest with us, uh, we're um, working our way through this book, and we will be in chapter 8 if you want to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8 um, and uh, hopefully make it all the way through uh, this chapter. Last weekend, um, Caleb, our student minister, uh, taught us from Hebrews chapter 7, and um, that uh, as we've been working our way through this book, the author of Hebrews has uh, frequently um, discussed or, uh, or, or highlighted a character named Melchizedek, um, which I know that for many weeks you have been building in anticipation. You were wondering what all of this is about. Who is this guy? Why does he have this uh, name? And, and, and what, why does the author continually point Jesus and sort of attribute Jesus to him? Well, Caleb answered that question so faithfully, um, elevating Jesus over the line of the priesthood, the line of Aaron, um, and Jesus being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek in a sense that we have this great high priest, but we also have a king. And I want to encourage you to go back. If you uh, missed that message last weekend, you, wherever you find a podcast, you can go back and uh, listen to that on Hebrews chapter 7. And so as the author is continuing to just uh, explain and elevate Jesus, one of the things you see our subtitle here on this, uh, this series is Jesus is Greater. The author of this letter to its original hearers is trying to help the church understand and believe that Jesus is greater than everything that they might have known. And these are Jewish Christians, more than likely, who have the Old Testament, understand the Old Testament, believe and sort of have elevated the prophets and angels and, um, and the priesthood. And all of these things were very held in very high regard. And now Jesus has come along as the Messiah and the author of Hebrews is saying to them, is trying to elevate and help them understand why he is greater. And so, in the very beginning of chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. Now if you've ever wondered, I don't know if you've ever found yourself saying this, and uh, as I'm speaking to you, it would, it would surprise me if it hasn't happened. But you're like, would you please just explain what the point of what you're saying is? Um, our elder team knows sometimes in my long-windedness I have a roundabout way of getting to that point. Um, but the text here says the point of all that we just told you about Jesus and elevating him above all the other priests of old is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So the point of all that he has been saying, at least more recently in these last couple of chapters, is to elevate Christ and to help us, to help the hearers and then now us, the original hearers and now us, to know that we have a high priest who is seated with God, seated at the right hand of the Father. Why does it matter? 
that we have a high priest, Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek? And why does it matter that Melchizedek was a king and a priest and that Jesus uh, sort of uh, finalized that or, or brought that sort of reality into flesh again? Why? Because of what Jesus has ushered in and what he has done. Jesus resides, it says there in verse 2, not in a tent built by man, but in the true tent built by the Lord. And in verse 5, he explains, verse 5 of chapter 8, he explains that this tent that we know, the physical tent that was at one point here on earth, that tabernacle, served a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Essentially what he's saying here in the very first few verses is that everything that we have known, the Old Testament priesthood, the prophets, all that is found in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. And Jesus, where there were temporal, in a sense, it was a temporal circumstance or temporal things that the priesthood sort of um, officiated over, Jesus is the one who is eternal and he now sits at the right hand of God showing us that it is his work is complete. The earthly things are just a shadow. Even the temple itself. If you know much about your Old Testament, you know that the temple was highly regarded. It was a very sacred place, beginning with the tent and then becoming an actual physical building that was created. This temple was where God would meet with his people, and so it was very sacred. But it was just a shadow. Jesus himself, in Mark chapter 14, it says of him, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. You can be sure that when the Pharisees heard Jesus say that, they were enraged that Jesus would say, you're going to tear down the temple, and then by the way, in just three days you think you're gonna build another one because they're just thinking in physical terms. And what Jesus was saying is that I am going to rebuild the spiritual temple in three days, and three days later, he would take up his life again after laying, down, laying it down on the cross, establishing for himself he is the priest who made the final and ultimate sacrifice to atone for sins once and for all. This tabernacle was a shadow of something better. The author of Hebrews starts by explaining that that tabernacle was a shadow of something that would be better and that we would only find in Christ. And ultimately, that also is true of what was practiced under that or within that tabernacle, within that tent, which was the old covenant. And this is why he continues to say, if we pick up in verse six, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If we jump down to the very end of chapter 8 in verse 13, it's talking about the difference between these covenants. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is, obsolete, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so Jesus, our great high priest, our king has come to fulfill sort of all the things that were just a shadow in the Old Testament. By the way, if you want to know why we study our Old Testament, why it's so vital, is because we can see Christ all throughout it. 
We can see ourselves in so many ways in the people of Israel. We can see so many things. We can learn so much from the Old Testament. But all of it was pointing to Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, the entire Bible is all about Jesus. It's not just about Israel in the Old Testament, and now it's about Jesus in the New Testament. But no, it was all pointing to Jesus. And what Jesus establishes here is ultimately he's going to go back. Notice, we'll see where this is quoted from. You heard Michael read. He said the reading was from Jeremiah 31. A few Bible scholars in the room know that's in the Old Testament. What the author of Hebrews is doing is calling back here in the New Testament to what Jesus did in saying that from old, this has been the purpose and plan of God, was to establish this new covenant. Not because he was throwing, or not because this was a plan B, or he sort of said, oh, I've got to figure something out. Again, this is from Jeremiah, hundreds written hundreds of years before this actual moment where the author of Hebrews is elevating it to help us understand why Jesus is greater and the covenant that Jesus brought into being. So he says, just as the tabernacle was a shadow, the law or the Old Testament or the Old Covenant was a shadow, was a pointer to what would become and replace this new covenant. What is this new covenant? We should ask ourselves, why does it matter to us? Because if you call yourself a Christian, it is because Jesus has sealed this new covenant with his blood and welcomed you and called you into it. That's what he has done. This is what happens in covenant. If you never heard about this idea of being in covenant with one another, you know some of our people in this church know that our membership in, within the walls and the life of City Church, we are called covenant partners, which means that we make a commitment to one another. We covenant together to see the kingdom of God built here in this community and beyond. That's what we're doing as a New Testament church. And we use that terminology covenant because it's a biblical term. And it's a biblical term that means it's a legal, in a sense, binding contract between two people. But this particular covenant, the new covenant, is a contract that was created by God and sealed by God. It is his work. It is what he is doing. See, rulers would make covenants with their people, and these would be sort of things that they would do in exchange for protection. We see in, a- in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham that he'd be the father of many nations. And then uh, in Exodus, that we're going to look at a little closer here, God makes a covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai and makes the old covenant, essentially gives him the law, the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. And here, we are reflecting on the new covenant that Jesus made with his disciples at the Last Supper. Do you remember what we celebrate when we receive communion? Jesus tells his disciples that he is establishing with them a new covenant, a new covenant sealed by his blood, which means it cannot be broken. This is important to us. So the author of Hebrews wants this local church, and now we get to hear, what does this mean? What happens? What is the new covenant? When Jesus says that, what does it mean for you and for me? The old covenant was based on the law and the people keeping the law. But ultimately, as it says in verse 7, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. We know that the old covenant did not do what 
it was it did what it was intended to do, but it didn't accomplish the purpose that God would have hoped that it would have accomplished, which was his people being obedient. That's what happened. We know the law of God, many of us, and we can ask ourselves just as we prayed, how often do we forget the law of God? Do we forget and do we fail in that obedience? And so the old covenant, if it had been faultless, there wouldn't have been a need, but Jesus came to usher in this new covenant. And so, We read all the way back from Jeremiah 31 to understand what this new covenant means for us. One thing that will help you in just some context in this is the occasion when Jeremiah 31, when God spoke these words, what was happening. And it illustrates the purpose of the new covenant just in the situation that we find ourselves. This Jeremiah 31 occurred, God spoke these words probably about 600 years before the author of Hebrews quotes them, quotes these words. 600 years prior, and what had happened is that Israel had received the law, had failed to keep the law, had completely, in a sense, forgotten and lost the law and had had drifted away completely from following God. Then they rediscover the law of God. They uncover it and they realize that they are a sinful people. They realize that they need to turn away from their sins, they need to repent of their sins, and so there is this, in a sense, this national level of repentance of Israel, and they turn back to God, and they reestablish their covenant with God that they will follow the law, that they will do as God has commanded them to do. And can you imagine what happened right after that? The same thing that will happen to you around 3 p.m. this afternoon, or if you're like me, maybe sooner. You'll fail. They failed. They didn't keep the law. It's they, they repent. There's this, ma- this massive ceremony, this we are going to obey God. We're going to do all that God has called us to do. We're going to live exactly as God has called us to live. All of the emotions that you're feeling right now, you're so energized to live for the kingdom in this moment. And then we walk out. They leave that situation, and they sin against the Lord. They fail to keep his commandments. And so is that situation that God seeing that, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, not like the Mosaic covenant, that's what he's pointing to, where I gave them the law. Now I will make a new covenant, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. And then in verse 10, he begins to describe what this new covenant will look like. And this is the covenant that all Christians are under today, live under. And it's beautiful for us to see this and to remember what God has done through Christ. In verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. See, in the old covenant, the law was written on tablets of stone. It was an external sort of document, something they would read and they would look at and understand. But it wasn't something that was internal. And the covenant that God says that he will make with his people is no longer will it just be some sort of external thing that they look at or know of, but this will be written on their hearts and on their minds. God will move in such a way that his word, his law, is written on their hearts and on their minds. 
It would not be something just external. This is what is described in some way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old heart of stone did not have God's law written upon it. What God has done by redeeming us and redeeming his people is he's taken that heart of stone that did not have anything written on it. He has replaced it with a heart of flesh and he has written his word upon our hearts and in our minds. We have the capacity to understand God's word, to see God's word, and very often even, I hope, to memorize and meditate and reflect on God's word. If you ever think to yourself, when I read this book, it actually speaks and it, it, it gives me life and it, it moves, that's because God has given you a new heart that possesses his word within it. You can understand and know God even because of this new heart that he has given you. This is what he means when he says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, is it's not just some external thing. It is an internal thing. There are speed limit signs all over the roads. Many of you disobey them actually right out on that exit, on the, you make that right-hand turn. I've just heard. I'm friends with our tremendous police force, and so you can just be grateful that they love you, City Church. That's an external writing of what the law says. Some of us, not many, but perhaps there are a few that have that sort of internal sort of speedometer. You just sort of know what speed is, and you don't have to really monitor that or look too closely at that. You don't possess that when you are under the age of 21. But at some point, there may be in life, you sort of progress to that level where it began to sort of maybe feel, okay, you could tell how fast you were driving. This is what it seems like. We have God's law written on our hearts and on our minds. We can know God. We can understand his word. This also helps us to explain. You probably have friends, my, I would guess, that as you try to open up God's word and it, explain it to them and read it to them. There's some confusion and there's frustration and there's, it's hard. It's because God has not yet opened up their heart to receive his word. And so we have to pray and ask the Lord for help in that. It's the Lord who reveals himself to us and he writes his law and this is the covenant that he has made with us. We can know God and it is now because we are new creations. Second thing he says that this new covenant will bring about in the midst of his people he says that I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the second half of verse 10. I will be their God and they shall be my people. God had told Moses that he would make Israel a people and that he would be their God all the way back in Exodus. That's what he told them that he would do. But the reality was, and we see this again, this is Jeremiah where the nation of Israel has just had some degree of repentance and turning back and saying they're gonna follow God. The reality was, is that that wasn't true of all of Israel. Not everyone believed, not everyone followed God's law. No matter how often they heard it, no matter how uh, passionate the, 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 the people of Israel were to share that word with them, there were many who did not follow God. Here's the beautiful thing about this new covenant. Under the new covenant, there is not a believer who is bought by the blood of Christ who cannot say he is my God. And there is not a believer bought by the blood of Christ whom God will not say he or she is my son or my daughter. You will not find yourself an orphan 
under this new covenant when you have put your faith and belief in what Christ has secured. This is a beautiful thing. In John 10, Jesus is describing the relationship that he has with the Father. I and the Father are one, and whoever the Father gives to me, no one can snatch them from the Father's hand. That's assurance. That's blessed assurance. Jesus is mine, as we sometimes sing. There's confidence in that, to know that I am the Father's, and he calls me a son. That is what is secured for us by this new covenant. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There won't be any doubt about those who have been welcomed into this new covenant and sealed with the blood of Christ of who they belong to. You can see in this, there's a deeper relationship that comes. This is a personal relationship with God. This is not something that is found sort of at the national level. It's not the nation of Israel any longer. It is individual, that we know God. We can know that God knows us. I've referred to it many times before, but one of my favorite books is a book by J.I. Packer called Knowing God, the reality that we can know our creator. He just sort of unpacks that thought at length. It's such a powerful book to know and to give us confidence. God says of us, who belong to the new covenant, new covenant people, that I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 11 says, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. This is the other reality or the sort of continuation even of this idea that we will know God personally, but is also that the Holy Spirit of God is what will move and reveal himself to us. And we won't have to go around any longer as they might have done in the old covenant trying to say, let me just sort of convince you of this belief. Let me teach you this. Let me tell you of this. You need to believe this. There's no one that's going to be argued into the new covenant or the kingdom of God. It's all going to be the work of Christ and what he has done. The new covenant is personal. And the new covenant is only entered into through knowing Christ as Savior and Lord. John says in chapter 17, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What he says that they will not have to teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. He's describing there that this would be a personal knowledge of Christ and that it would be the work of the Holy Spirit of God who would reveal himself to each one. This is what God will do in this new covenant. And for those of us who know Christ that have been welcomed into this new covenant, Philippians 3 will describe us. I wish to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Do you want to know Christ? Do you want to understand who he is? Do you want to know the power of his resurrection? We talk about that on Easter Sunday, that Jesus is resurrected, has taken up his life again, and that we have been sort of, we have been united with him and welcomed into that resurrection. Well, what does that mean? We can know that. It means that we walk with Christ every moment of our lives, and that we have security in that, and we can know that deeply in our souls, and there's an eagerness to know the power of his resurrection and the work of Christ in our lives more and more and more. 
You want to know why Paul, he wrote a third of the New Testament, why it seems that he was so zealous? It was because those were his words. I wish to know Jesus. I don't want to know just all the things that he can bring to me. I don't want to just know all the comforts that he can offer. I don't want to know the things that he has done or will do. I want to know Jesus. That is the heart. And those of us who have put our faith in Christ, in some way we can say that about ourselves. And this is what the Holy Spirit does. Now, I do want to just make sure this is clear. This is not a calling to stop sharing what Christ has done in your life. This is not a calling to say you shouldn't even talk to your neighbor. He's not saying that you should not talk to your neighbor about the new covenant or what Christ has done, that you should not engage with your brother in those conversations. What he's saying is that the means through which God will move will not just be some sort of argument or some presentation of proper words or language. In a sense, this is a freeing, that we can know that it is the Spirit of God who moves on our hearts and transforms us. We can't convince our neighbors or our friends to believe in Jesus. What we can do is make Jesus so known to them that they can hardly deny the reality that he is alive. I can't convince anyone to believe, but I can present to you Jesus in such a way that you can't deny the reality that he's alive, that he's at work, and that he cares, and that he loves you, and that he's for you. This is the work that we're called to do as the church. But this new covenant, this personal relationship comes through the work of God as we believe. Finally, he says in verse 12, one of the sweetest verses in all of Scripture, God says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. See, under the old covenant, Sins were not completely forgiven. And they weren't at all forgotten. The people would sin. The priests would go in and offer atonement for that sin. They would do that year after year after year, season after season, on just repeat, continually having to go into the temple to make sacrifice for sins. But they weren't forgotten, they weren't completely forgiven because the only way that complete and true forgiveness comes from God is through the blood of Christ. And so they were waiting for Christ's blood to be shed to cover them for that blood sacrifice. But under the new covenant, it says that God is merciful towards those of us who sin. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, toward their sins. One of the realities that I know exists, some in this room and all over the world, but I want you to hear this personally. If there has ever been a time where you were told that there was some sin in your life that was not within the reach of God's mercy, that it was not possible for God to forgive you of this or that, that if you have done this or there's this in your past or you know this about yourself, that surely God could not love you. That is a lie straight from the pit of hell. 
The truth is, is what God's word says here, not what Ryan says, but what God's word says here, for I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will be merciful towards their sin. Whatever those sin issues are in your life, God says in this new covenant, those of you who would put your faith in Christ, in Christ alone, welcomed into this new covenant, your sins will be forgiven that he will show you mercy. So whatever lie you may have believed in your past, believe it no longer, friend. He will show you mercy if you come to him with a heart of repentance and confess and give that over to him. And how much will he forgive? This is something I love. And I will remember their sins no more. I will remember their sins no more. Do you know God cannot forget? You want to know why he can't forget? Because God is not bound by time. And so because he's not bound by time, there's nothing in the past that is not right now to him, and there's nothing in the future that is not right now to him. It's Dr. Strange on steroids. We can't even begin to comprehend exactly how that works or what he is doing or the magnitude and the bigness of God. But he is, he is always everywhere at all times, all things. That's how he is. And so it's impossible for God to forget Because to forget would also be to change, and he does not change. We know all these things. And yet he says here, God's word to you is, and I will remember their sins no more. It's impossible for God to forget unless he wills himself to do so. And on you and I's behalf, he says, I will will myself to forget their sins. Not to just forgive their sins, but to forget them to see them no more. This is why our union with Christ, which we talk about in this church, is so powerful because we have fellowship, perfect fellowship with Jesus in such a way that God no longer looks upon us and sees us in our sinfulness. Whatever past you might have, he does not look upon us and see this future sin that's in your life. He looks upon us and when he sees us, he looks at us and sees Jesus. That's what he sees. Our Father, who is merciful to us, if we would run to him, says that he will forget our sins. He will cause himself to no longer even remember them. And when he looks at you, citizens of the kingdom of heaven, bought by the blood of Christ, sealed in this new covenant through Jesus and Jesus alone, you are covered. And we can run into the mercy and the kindness of our God. The old covenant could never do any of that. That wasn't found in the old covenant. And so God, in his providential and perfect plan, when he saw the time was right, sent his son to live a sinless and perfect life so that he could be the great high priest who would offer the proper atonement for sin for all time. And after making that atonement for my sins and for yours, he would sit down at the right hand of the Father because he said, it is finished, it is finished. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your 
sacrifice, your shed blood on my behalf. Father God, I thank you that you would see fit to welcome me, a great sinner, into your family, into covenant relationship with you. And I can do nothing but worship you this morning and strive to do so with every day of my life. Thank you, Father, that no longer do I strive to keep the law so that I might be seen as obedient to you or in right standing with you, but rather in response to your great mercy, I can live my life as an act of worship to you. I thank you, Father, that I cannot, nor would you ask me to try and make a sacrifice or atone for my own sins. But our Savior Jesus was the perfect and final sacrifice for sins. I pray for every soul in this room who's exhausted from striving to please you, God. Would you move so powerfully in their hearts right now? Reveal yourself to them in such a way that they would know that you are pleased with them not based upon what they have done, but you are pleased with them based on what your son, our savior, Jesus has done. Would you give the gift of faith? Would you help every soul in this room to believe? To believe in this Jesus who is greater, who all of your word points to and directs our attention to. As we sang earlier, Father, help our hearts to believe. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the preaching of God's Word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 2300 Vineyard Hill Lane, and we hope to see you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God and the good of the city.